Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 12. This morning we're going to pick up right in the middle of verse 36 and read through the end of the chapter. So John chapter 12, beginning in 36b. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, John says, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He, God, I think Christ, as we're going to see, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue because for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say 
as the Father has told me. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, would you please now bring your word to good effect in the hearts of everyone gathered. It is living and active. We pray then, by your mercy and grace, you would cause your word to live and act within us in ways that bring us great joy in Christ and great glory to you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So what would you say is the main goal of biblical Christianity toward this fallen humanity? It's a good question to wrestle with. What is the main goal of biblical Christianity toward this fallen humanity? If we took a poll, uh, even amongst ourselves, I'd guess we'd have a few distinct answers. And of course, if we were to widen that poll out beyond ourselves, I'm sure the answers, even amongst professing Christians, would differ rather widely. And yet, what if I told you? What if I told you it could all be boiled down to one main thing? That there is a main goal, an ambition, each of us should be able to agree upon and get behind and then labor for together. And that that main goal is this, just this. It is an overriding, life-dominant passion to facilitate unbelievers becoming true believers, key qualifier there, true believers and faithful followers of Jesus. That's it. It's to make maturing word-bound disciples of Jesus. Dear ones, our text today brings to a close the public ministry of Jesus. I just want you to think about all he's done. All he's done from creating wine to, to raising the dead, right? He's done countless wonderful things for mankind. But his main goal was never just a, a wedding, Mary, with new wine was it? Think about John chapter 2. His main goal was never just to see a paralytic man get up and walk. It wasn't just the grandest food pantry that's ever been in the history of the world. Think about John 6. It wasn't just raising a man from the dead. If you think about Lazarus. And to be sure, and to be sure, it wasn't just to preach the greatest and purest sermons the world ever heard or be the source of the most immediate body of doctrine and divinity either, was it? I mean, all those things are heavenly things. But none of them are ends in themselves. None of them are the main goal. All of them are, in fact, subordinate to the one greatest hope, and that is that unbelievers would exercise, come to exercise, true faith in Jesus. That is why John has written everything he's written, that we would believe in Christ, and that believing in Christ, we would have life in his name. That is why Jesus did everything he did. So he brings his entire ministry to a close with this loud cry about believing in him. Don't miss the point, he seems to be crying. 
Don't misapprehend the main goal of my coming into the world. Don't miss out your eternal demise on me. Believe today. Believe truly. Is that the backdrop for everything we do? Is that the main goal of our lives? Is that why we get up in the morning? When we go to bed at night, put our head down on the pillow, is that what's running through our minds? Oh, that people would believe truly in Jesus. Let's come to our text. And consider first in verses 36b through 43, unbelief, unbelief as a reason to believe truly in Jesus. You see there our passage picks up with an enacted parable. Jesus has just told them to believe and walk in the light while they have it, lest the darkness what? Overtake them, overwhelm them, and in true prophetic fashion then, he acts out the warning that he's just given them. He departs and he hides himself from their eyes. And friend, I'll just tell you on the front end of things here that there is no greater judgment Jesus could depict for us as an incentive to believing in him. It is the height of misery to be left to oneself. It is the height of misery to be left in the darkness of our sins and to be left then outside of Christ. To see Christ depart and then disappear so that the light goes out without having gotten in you. And talk about the bitterest foretaste of a coming judgment. Listen. The rejection of the light of Christ is a revelation of the darkness in a soul. You judge Christ unworthy of faith, you are actually proving yourself worthy of judgment. And in verse 37, John tells us that's what these folks had done repeatedly. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. And given the fact of all these things that he had done, that is just a shocking, albeit concise comment on just how hard the natural human heart can be. And it's in light of it to attempt again an alleviation of it that Jesus, after dwelling among them so long and so gloriously, then removes himself from their sight. They are still unbelieving. And, and that is a problem if, as John is, you are laboring for the onset of real faith in Jesus. That's a problem. The problem goes like this. Why would I, so far removed from the events themselves, believe that Jesus is the Christ when his own people nearest those events did not? That's a problem. Maybe it's thought, <clears throat> Jesus really isn't all that, didn't do all that, so that all this, no offense, John, is at best a stretching of the truth and at worst a total fabrication. It seems John has at least two responses, one implicit in his writing and one explicit. Implicitly, as an apologetic, John does not hide the problem. He could, but he doesn't. He doesn't hide the problem. 
He acknowledges the problem. Do you see how that works in favor of the truth about Jesus? Think about elections, okay? You see all the commercials. If we want to garner acceptance and support for a person, the human tendency is to badmouth any rival, right? While airbrushing one's own blemishes. They are a Christ. So, if I was trying to persuade Jewish folks that Jesus was the Christ of God, the least advisable thing you'd think he'd do is report how the great majority of Jewish folks did not believe in him. Against our way of thinking, the last thing John would do is tell it as it was. The last thing he'd do is just report the facts. The last thing he would do is tell the truth. But that's exactly what he does. And in doing it, then, the Gospel of John, like the other Gospels and the rest of the Bible, carries this amazing scent of authority and sincerity and authenticity. Jesus was rejected by his own people, and John is then saying, contrary to what you think, that means you should believe in him. You see, the airbrushing folks want you to believe a lie. But throughout, the biblical authors, fishing for Christ's true people, hoping in God for true faith, are tirelessly concerned with reporting the truth and nothing but the truth about Jesus. And so even the acknowledgement of the problem acts in its own way to establish the facts and to engender, God willing, saving faith in Christ. Now, we're still left with the problem then, aren't we? Why didn't Jesus' own ethnic people more widely believe in him while he was among them? Well, okay, this is where we get to attend to John's more explicit teaching, starting in verse 38, where, in brief, John's answer to that question, why didn't Jesus' own ethnic people more widely believe in him, is basically this. The Bible said that's how it would be. He looks back upon the writings of Isaiah and finds in Isaiah a prophetic ministry not of national revival and awakening, but of national judgment. <clears throat> Isaiah's was a ministry from God where the predominant effect of the prophet's faithfulness would not be the relief, but the maintenance of their sin and rebellion against God. Their sin-bred blindness and hardness would only worsen and continue. So talk about your desirable pulpits, okay? I'm guessing that that was not the most desirable position in the land. O oh Lord, as we read this morning and saying this morning, I have just seen your holy glory and how unworthy a worm I am. Great, God says, I have a job for you. Yes, Lord, anything, here I am, send me, but if I may, 
What do you have in mind? The glorious preaching of your grace in the city of God, sparking this tidal revival of the profoundest faith in the coming King of heaven? No, Isaiah. You will preach that. But instead of it effecting salvation, it will effect judgment. Instead of sight, blindness. Instead of spiritual sensitivity, hardness. Instead of prophetic joy, a lot, a lot of perplexing pain. Oh Lord, Isaiah says, how long <laughs> until all that remains of Israel is a stump? That is, until things start over with Christ, who is the stump. <laughs> so, Isaiah, having seen the king in his glory, would seldom, if ever, see others see that glory and love it. That is a hard thing for a true minister of the gospel. So it's not without the implication of a heartbroken man that we hear toward the end of his ministry, as in our verse 38, Lord, who? And you see him. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That is the sigh of the ministry God gave Isaiah it was a ministry designed to execute divine judgment for a history of personal sin and national unbelief. Lots of light, right? I mean, who among the prophets saw and let out more gospel light than the prophet Isaiah? It's absolutely worth noting that the first quote there in verse 38 is the start of the great Isaiah 53. Isaiah, in other words, apparently, characteristically preached the cross of Christ 700 years before the fact of it. And yet, near universal unbelief. Lord, who has believed? And what John is meaning to say then is that that ministry, however addressed to Isaiah, continued as said in Isaiah 6, to and through the ministry of Jesus the Christ. Again, Isaiah preached the King of glory, but he preached the King of glory how? As the suffering servant. He predicted and depicted the Christ, but how did he do that? As crucified, Isaiah 53. And obviously, he did not do that because the Christ would come into the world and find greater success among his people than Isaiah did. But sadly, to the contrary, the Christ is going to find more of the same. If you know the Bible, John's saying the expectation for Israel was not that they would embrace the Christ. 
The expectation necessitated by God in Scripture was that they would refuse to believe in Christ. That they would spurn the brightest gospel light there's ever been. If only to feel against reality unfettered in the dark. You gotta die. Too much light for darkened hearts. Their unbelief is a reason for why one should believe truly in Jesus. Now, a couple things further, because this is a hard but important passage. John is ascribing the unbelief of this people also to the sovereign purpose of God. This is why we do expositional preaching. Okay? So we don't skip passages like this. And we get the whole counsel of God. God told Isaiah, this is how it will be. This is how it's going to happen. And that is how it happened. That's how it was. God spoke it. It was inscripturated. And thus, it could not but come to pass as is. You're going to see the same thing on an individual level with Judas in John 17. So, in fact, if you look at verse 39, in between the quotes of Isaiah's commission and its results, John comments, therefore, these folks, what? Could not believe. Could not believe. Not just would not believe. That's true. But also, could not believe. That's also true. Indeed, if you look at verse 40, it is inarguably clear, God, in blinding, maintains their unbelieving. Which contend, understandably, to make us very sad, very uneasy, and very perplexed. So, what does Scripture give us as footholds on the side of this apparent cliff? Quite a lot, actually. But we're just going to try to keep it focused in. Okay. First thing is this. We need to understand and affirm always that God does not reveal anything that He thinks is bad for us. Okay. Case in point. Case in point, hard things, okay? The reality is that this very text, as hard as it may be, is intending to motivate faith in Jesus. You see that? It is not meaning to depress the soul, but rather press your soul to mercy. And about that, about that mercy, John, with the rest of the Bible, cannot be more clear. You see, here's the thing. What bothers us is this notion that we're fairly decent people who more or less deserve good things from God. So that this kind of activity seems really harsh and very unfair. 
It seems to us to be unbecoming of the God we know, we think. But that really only exposes we don't know God or ourselves all that very well. We do actually know that what we see in this passage is justice. It is a judgment of God owing to their sins. Could God enable their sight? Absolutely. But must God enable their sight as a matter of being just? Absolutely not. That is always a matter of mercy and grace. Okay? Friends, if God were to apply universal justice, justice across the board of history, he would maintain our spiritual blindness all the way to hell. We are sinners. Hard-heartedness is our thing. Left alone, the light that would melt wax only hardens us because we're not wax, we're obstinate clay. It's not as if if God would just let us alone, we'd all be soft and seeing and saved. He is not holding them, you've got to note this, he's not holding them against their wills. As if, if he just let them be, they would just run to Jesus. If anything, it's God who, holding us at all, keeps us from being as awful as we really want to be. What God's doing here is simply maintaining their will. The fact of God's sovereignty is not removing the expression of our wills. It is not removing the responsibility of our decisions. It is not removing the culpability of our actions, especially with respect to Jesus. But this is what the fact of God's sovereignty does. It devastates. It devastates any notion we might have of saving ourselves. So that we come to cast ourselves entirely upon the mercy of God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the goal. Which is why Jesus here has no problem, right after this passage, in the second half, he has no problem calling on people to do something, to exercise their wills, to believe in him, because Jesus knows something we do well to bear in mind, that God, the Almighty, is also merciful and gracious. And that it's in coming to see that, that we are inclined to seek him for it. So, whatever John means to do here, it is not to create a calloused picture of God, but a calloused picture of people who God alone, because he's God, has the joy, the right, and the ability to do whatever he wants with. And certainly to save them. Moreover, and back to the main thread of the, of the passage and of the sermon, because we need to press ahead. Have a look at verse 41 here. It's astounding. 
John says that Isaiah said these things because he saw Christ's glory. Christ's glory. Talk about expanding your view of Isaiah. Go read Isaiah now. Talk about expanding your view of Isaiah, expanding your view of Jesus, expanding your view of when we sing, holy, holy, holy. He saw Christ's glory. Talk about expanding your view of the sovereign one in this text who is executing this judgment. The great vision of God in Isaiah 6 where angels are shielding their eyes and a magisterial prophet, as we call them, is reduced to a wretched pile of repentance is a vision of Messiah. That is astounding. Can you imagine seeing the beatific vision of the pre-incarnate Christ? Having that splendor get in your bones? And longing for souls to see the same glory and the message that you're to preach by which sinners may come to see it is a message of infinite and entirely unexpected grace. The King of glory will become, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who will die to save us from our sins. And that is His glory. John says. Isaiah saw his glory. So as a week ago, the cross of Christ is not his defeat. It's not a reason to put him off as illegitimate. The cross is the triumph of Christ. It is the purchase of Christ. It is the magnet of Christ. It is the throne of Christ. So again, far from being a reason not to believe in him, the unbelief of this people, they're going to throw him out to the cross, actually bids us believe on Jesus. He is the Christ of God. But now, if John's sincerity and Scripture's veracity, truthfulness, establish their unbelief as a reason to believe in Jesus. Remember, remember, John, as Jesus, is concerned that that faith itself be true and sincere. Do you see that nevertheless in verse 42? It's an interesting word. It's almost as if John's saying that despite the sovereign decree that encapsulated their generation, some, even of the authorities, believed in him that grace was still very operable only. That's not all John says, is it? How does John end his, end his thought here? It's that these folks' faith remained secret because they feared the repercussions of publicity for Jesus. Ultimately, echoing the grave condemnation Jesus gave in John 5, 44, they loved what people thought more than what God thought. 
Do you remember how Jesus fronted that? He rhetorically gives this question. He says, how can you all believe? That's not what he said. How can you believe? How can you believe when you receive glory from people rather than the only God? Dear ones, living for God's glory in this world will put us at odds with godless, however religious, people. Nevertheless, what John is getting at is that, this is very critical, okay? Listen up now. Not all faith in Jesus is true faith in Jesus. John does this over and over and over and over and over again because Jesus did. Not all faith in Jesus is true faith in Jesus. Not all faith in Jesus is saving faith in Jesus. We've got to remember what James says even the demons believe. We might even say even the devil believes and they shudder. But that's not saving faith. John's saying that all true faith in Jesus has at its heart a sight of his glory for which we are willing to be a fool in the eyes of the world. Knowing the brilliance of Christ, the glory of Christ, such a faith is willing to face the wrath of man. Note the play on words in verses 41 and 43. Isaiah saw his what? Glory. But these quote-unquote believers loved, it says in verse 43, the Go ahead. The glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Isaiah 6 is behind that. Think about that. They love the glory that comes from people more than that. Isaiah preached Christ through a lifetime of rejection that ended, they say, with Isaiah being sawn in two. Because he saw his glory. But these here, for comfort and acclaim, refused to go forward for Jesus. Why? Because, beloved, they at the end of the day saw no compelling glory. Or at least no greater glory in Christ. I mean, they saw all he did. As none had done before. Heard all he said. As none had preached before. And somewhat akin to Nicodemus then, they could not deny that Jesus was worth some degree of spiritual interest and intellectual trust, if not even appreciation and admiration. But true faith is a matter of the heart. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are dead. It's a matter of the heart, and it's manifest in the life 
a life of private, yes, but also public and preeminent love for the risen King of glory who suffered and died to save us from our sins. He speaks true then who said, quote, to love the glory of people above the glory of God is the supreme disaster. As well as another who says, quote, such ineffective, ineffective intellectual faith is really the climax here of unbelief. Oh, man. <clears throat> there are people, J.C. Ryle said, who, quote, live secretly ill, just ill with themselves, at ease, yet dissatisfied with themselves, knowing too much of Christ to be happy in the world while clinging too much to the world to enjoy Christ. True faith, he says, is the only cure for that ailment of soul. Dear ones, is our faith is our faith apparent and available, not for, but to the public eye? Are we careless of another person's put-downs so long as we are lifting Jesus up? Do we live for his praise? Do we live for his glory, like Isaiah? Are we willing, with Isaiah and so many others, to be persecuted for living a life of loving His glory and seeking His glory, that others too might see His glory more than the retribution of people who see no glory in Him at all? Don't, don't let yourself nod at that out of the habit of Christianity in America. Reckon with it and let it reckon with you. At the loss of reputation, at the loss of protection, at the loss of community, at the loss of family, at the loss of your life, at the loss of everything you've ever known and loved, would you confess Jesus in the throes of the cross with demons and darkness swirling about? Would you, like Nicodemus, will step into the light and identify with Christ and Him crucified. If you've seen His glory and received of His grace, you will. Or, at least, you will grow into that. Okay. John is not after just any faith in Jesus. No, even by their unbelief in this passage, he is after true faith in Jesus. And so we come to verses 44 to 15. I don't want you to worry, we're actually almost done. All of that was foundational for Jesus crying out to all the world, believe truly. In me. For John, 
These are the parting words. This, this is a massive moment in John's gospel. <laughs> These are the parting words of Jesus to the general public. With them, his public ministry will end, and his more private ministry toward his disciples is going to take center stage all the way through chapter 17. And so these words here are apex words. They tie up so many major themes of John into the main push and the main objective of Jesus. It's well worth committing to memory. And even now, hearing it with the urgency that John means to give to it. Jesus, remember, had disappeared. He'd gone and hidden himself from them. The light had gone out. And so it's as if, as one last public beam of heaven before the cross, Jesus pokes his head out, <laughs> he, he reappears, and he disturbs the night in their souls with this loud cry. All I want to do is offer its contents rather pointedly. So again, you'll note in verse 44 how John sees no conflict at all between the sovereignty of God in salvation and Christ's call to all to believe in Him. No conflict at all. His call here is whoever believes in me. That's the first thing here. The sovereignty of God does not make the call of Christ uh, superfluous. It makes the call of Christ necessary. It's necessary to call people, period, people to Christ. And if you haven't, it is necessary, if you be saved, to respond to that with faith in Him. Action is required. And to stir up that faith in him, then, Jesus explains through verse 50 that to believe in him is to believe in God. Think about that. God, verse 44, sent Christ as the great revelation of himself to us. And verse 45, Jesus has succeeded in that commission to have witnessed Jesus as they have witnessed Jesus is to have witnessed God in the flesh. So you and I, we don't need to wonder who God is, what he'd do here, what he'd say there. Jesus made God perfectly plain. We can just look at Jesus, listen to Jesus. For our groping about for God in the dark, Jesus, verse 46, came to us as true light of true light. For our blindness, He is divine sight. And if you say, well, but we can't see Him. We can't see Him. This is where it gets really practical. Jesus, as the great revelation of God, has spoken. The Word, the Bible, I mean, the Word has given us all the words that God thought necessary for believing and being saved or not 
and becoming a judgment unto ourselves. Friends and dear ones, let's be clear, verse 47, merely hearing the words of Christ proves no one a Christian. Again, Jesus is after true faith. And true faith is proven, it's evidenced, where a heart trusts and keeps what it's heard from Jesus. True faith takes Jesus at His word as the very word of God, in other words. And if you don't, Jesus states the upshot from that. It's, it's not exactly... It's not exactly that Jesus stands against you to judge you, but listen, listen. It's that rejecting the Word, rejecting the One who came into the world to save you, you, Jesus says, have actually imperiled yourself. There is a judgment coming. And verse 48, Jesus says, you do have a judge, and that judge is... The word of Christ that Christ has spoken to save you. So don't reject it today. Believe the word of Christ. Christ crucified and raised from the dead, all the Bible testifying to and then falling out from that is verse 49, the word of God to you. Don't allow yourself to be a mere hearer of it, much less reject it. Right? Don't, don't allow yourself to stay blind and or callous to the astonishing fact that though we are sinners deserving nothing but wrath from God, the word the Father gave us, the very word Christ spoke to us was first, verse 50, what? Eternal Life, that is incredible, not eternal death. Grace, eternal life. God, this sovereign God that we've seen in our text is actually inclined still to our salvation. That truth and grace has been manifest in Jesus Christ, told us in the Word of God, and specified in the Gospel. But then by the very nature of it, we cannot just give it a nod and a wink, we cannot put it off, we cannot reject it without imperiling ourselves for all eternity. No part of judgment will be more devastating, I don't think, than having the Word that came to save you judge you. then hearing from Jesus, still bearing the marks of his love, I did tell you so. Oh, friend, don't you believe in Jesus today? His final cry to the public in John's gospel is not get cleaned up, get some religion, get better friends, etc., then you can come to me. He did not come to salvage mostly decent people. He came to save to the uttermost sinners in the winter 
of their sin. And so he cries, only take me at my word. I died. I live to save you from your sins. Only believe. And you will have eternal life. Amazing. Won't you do that now? Beloved, what a way to close this section of John. Jesus wants us to know that he's not a figure of independent greatness. He is the word of God to be believed upon or he is nothing at all. Think back to the prologue there. Is that how we take Jesus out into the world? As the word of God to be believed upon? Is seeing unbelievers become true believers and faithful followers of Jesus the overriding passion of our lives? Is it the backdrop for everything we do? As we need to, let's make our course corrections. Let's hear the word, and not just hear the word, but heed the word. There is a main goal of biblical Christianity toward fallen humanity, and that is true faith in Jesus. So let's be all about that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We look to you. You are our only and all. Our hope for salvation and transformation. So again, we look to you. Our merciful and almighty God. We give you all the glory for the things that you have done and will do through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, we hope. Amen.